0: No mm-hmm. I've always loved the idea of Christmas specials, especially those ones which reference and sometimes explain things that took place in previous episodes. The stories in ear movies are all so different though, so it became a challenge to come up with a single story set at Christmas time, which somehow managed to reference them all. But who doesn't love a challenge? Gradually the idea gelled, as did the concept of using mainly minor characters to link to the other stories. Listen closely and you'll recognise that all the stories are represented. There's a couple of obvious examples, but some are not so overt. I'm a Christmas fan, not because of the presents and the money we inevitably spend, just because it's kind of a reminder that the kindness we show then, the love we give, the time we take to spend with our families, are things we should probably demonstrate the rest of the year as well. I've known Elizabeth Serby a long time, we were undergraduates together in Armidale in northern New South Wales. This university town, sitting on the New England tableland, was a hot pot of theatre when we attended. In my first year there, I saw over 50 productions, ranging from fully professional shows to one-person experimental performances I've spent a long time trying to repress. All of them informed me as a writer in some way though, And I hope the students who are there now are immersed into the same variety of theatrical experience that I was. Elizabeth has more passion for theatre than anyone I know. She teaches drama and still sees as many plays as she can get tickets for. She's also very talented. So while she doesn't choose to act very often anymore, I knew she'd be a great reader for this story. And she is. I hope you enjoy it.
1: The Night Raider Before Christmas Like a lot of good Christmas stories, this one starts with a young girl looking out of the window. Carols were playing on the radio as she watched the snowflakes fall. Unfortunately, this was summer 2020 in Australia and the flakes Lainey Harrison saw from her window were not frozen water, but dry white ash. The carols were reports of multiple fire fronts. Then a virus arrived and... Hmm. Even though this is a Christmas story, perhaps there should be a different beginning. Nothing to do with Christmas. Um. Oh. It wasn't the best of times. Some said it was the worst of times. It was the age of fires and lockdown. It was the age of fake news. It was the epoch of conspiracy theories. It was the epoch of mask-wearing. It was the season of not wearing a mask because apparently it's against human rights. It was the season of anti-vaxxers. It was the spring of financial chaos. It was the winter of deficit. It was the realisation that black lives matter. It was the sullen bitterness of business as usual. We had a mountain of debt before us. We had global warming before us. We were all going direct to Netflix. We were all going direct to sport and reality TV. In short. The period was just weird and tragic for millions around the world, although admittedly not so bad for most Australians and New Zealanders, but so unlike the recent past that some people talked about it in a superlative degree of comparison, especially the Foxtel pundits and people on Facebook who felt compelled to believe in alternative facts, but also reinforced by those gas bags in the ABC and the Greens who kept up a plaintive inquiry, born both on curiosity and demand, the repeated question, Won't somebody listen to the scientists? Conspiracy theorists versus concerned physicians. Skeptics versus acceptors. Canonists versus Karens. A tale of two systems. Lainey was eight. She didn't know the background to any of this. It was just life to her. She didn't know if things could get any worse. Although so much had already been bad, as 2020 hurried on to its conclusion, she was worried about something else as well. Christmas had gone missing. We just don't have the money, Nana said. With Mum not working and Grandad not around either, we're struggling to get by. Her mother, Beth, was slightly more optimistic. You never know what can happen, she said. Nana sniffed loudly. I used to be like you, she said, an optimist. But things have changed. We have to be practical. You've been unemployed for a year. We need money for the bills before we even think of Christmas. We can't afford a tree or food and don't even think about presents. Beth held Laney close and told her not to worry. Beth spoke with false hope. She was frightened but wasn't that what you should do with children? Give them hope? That was a good thing, surely. Beth thought it was nice. Beth prided herself on being nice. She knew she wasn't perfect, but she always tried hard not to offend people. One night, when Beth could smell beer on his breath, her father had told her she was amazing. She didn't believe him. He went on to say that he'd never meant to hurt her and that he believed in her. A few months later, he'd echoed these feelings in a letter from jail on creased paper she'd thrown into the bin and retrieved twice. Beth thought back to her time with Lainey's father, Eddie, back when she'd believed in his capacity for honesty and love and fidelity, lying together in candlelight, the purest light other than moonlight. He'd told her that she was like people who believed in the 60s. Those who could take Marvin Gaye and multiply him by Jim Morrison and then divide the result by Joni Mitchell and the stylistics to come up with something pretty bloody snazzy. She'd felt so happy until she'd found out he was seeing Nancy. Her. It was the same feeling she had when she read the letter from her father love crushed by fact, plans killed by life. <music> Everything had changed when they'd sold the farm they had out on the Dandry Road. Her parents hadn't wanted to, but they were in debt and the money the coal mine was offering seemed too good to turn down. But things hadn't worked out. It turned out the price the mine had paid covered little more than the debts her father had run up. They'd drifted from small town to small town as a dad found work driving trucks, fencing and harvesting. He started complaining he was now doing all the things he used to do on their own property, but without the chance of a bumper crop. It was disappointing that the rains the season after they'd sold were so good. They saw how much their former friends and neighbours had benefited. Eventually, they'd rented a house in Tamworth so Beth could settle in a school while her dad went further west into the cotton fields, irrigating, chipping and module building. When he came back, He was even sadder than before. The beer he grabbed from the fridge was now the first thing he did, even before kissing her and Mum. Sometimes he and Mum argued, they'd always rowed a bit, but nothing like this. He was pulled over for DUI. He lost his licence and there was a big fine as well. He made promises, but then slowly started drinking again. As he didn't have a licence, Beth's mum was frequently called out late to the pub to pick him up. One night she said she wouldn't do it anymore. Her dad had taken the car, said he'd only have a couple. He'd stacked it into the row of pines near the school and then argued with the police. He was jailed for three months. That was his first time inside. When things had been good, he'd had a bright smile and laughed like a kookaburra. Beth missed the funny, kind, helpful man he'd been. She didn't like the bitter, angry, somehow smaller man he'd become when he was released. He'd been bigger on the property. In town, in their small house, he'd shrunk. Beth was distancing herself. He was letting them all down. He knew it, and they knew it. There was damage being done. One evening, her parents had argued again. A big one because the car he'd scraped together enough money for wouldn't pass Rego they didn't have the money to fix it. This meant her dad would find it hard to get to the property he was working on, doing something called stick picking, which he didn't like and which didn't pay much anyway. Her mum had tried to reassure him it would be okay. He'd asked repeatedly how it was going to get better. And then he stopped questioning and started telling. It would never get better. He didn't get enough money for the farm. The mine had cheated them. Her mother didn't usually shout. This time she went right off at him. She told him to stop feeling sorry for himself, that he needed to get off the grog, that he had to let go of the grief he felt or it would kill him. The morning after the argument, Beth had woken early. She'd gone to the kitchen and eaten some cornflakes. She'd walked quietly back up the hall to her bedroom. She looked out the window. There were a bunch of kids from St Albans waiting for their bus. It came. The kids disappeared. Then a miracle happened. The gate opened itself. An envelope appeared on the footpath leading up to the house. Just out of nowhere. One second there was nothing. The next? An envelope. A small rock landed on top of it. Then the gate closed. If she had to evaluate what happened, if they were in a world where anything was possible, she'd say an invisible person had deposited the envelope. Then they'd put a rock on it so it couldn't fly away and gone out and shut the gate. But that was impossible, so it must have been the wind. But it was a dry and still day, not a hint of a breeze. Even if there'd been a gale, it wouldn't have explained the gate opening and closing, and the rock. The envelope had her parents' names on it and contained $2,000. It was more than enough to fix the car as well as give them a family night out. They'd had a great time at the club. Her father had promised not to drink, and he hadn't. At least, not until right at the end. They'd left him there. Beth could see how sad her mother looked when they had said goodnight. He didn't come home. The police rang in the morning. He'd gotten into a bad fight. Her mother could apply for bail. She cried when she explained to Beth she didn't want to. Beth understood. The envelope was Beth's first miracle. She thought about it for a while. There was just no explanation. Eventually, though, it faded from memory. She finished school. She started uni but was restless. She couldn't focus. She kept thinking about how her dad had changed. Her mum too, she realised. Their combined sadness leached into her like water creeping inside the pages of a paperback in a puddle. Beth left uni. She drifted. she drank, although not bitterly like a dad. Steadily enough, though, she was careless and found herself pregnant. Eddie was a nice enough guy, although lazy and prone to drinking too much as well. Like the pokies too. Looking back, the signs were obvious that their relationship wouldn't work out, but she'd ignored them. Beth thought they'd both get themselves together if she had the baby. Eddie had charm and a smile and all the words. She believed him, loved his eyes. She thought she wanted what he wanted, but he wanted Nancia. They split before Laney's first birthday. There were a series of guys after that for varying lengths of time. They all turned out to be irresponsible or liars. She knew how to pick a loser. The last one had been violent, and that was three years ago. After the court case, Eddie paid maintenance and dutifully took Lainey every second weekend, but he left most of the parenting to Beth. She knew Eddie loved Lainey, but he just had trouble converting that love into action. Responsibility wasn't his thing, he said. It just wasn't him. Some nights, Beth felt the chills of bitterness around her ankles and was reminded of her parents and the book in the water. Lainey was a bright, engaging, beautiful girl. She liked animals. She liked flowers. She liked people, especially her mum and dad and her nana. And she loved Christmas. One evening, only a few days before the Christmas they weren't going to have, Lainey asked about miracles. Beth remembered the envelope from all those years before. She was actually kind of surprised she'd forgotten it for so long. She said to Lainey that yes, she'd witnessed a miracle. Something good which couldn't be explained, which had, for at least a brief moment, changed things for the better. With little else to do after she put Lainey to bed and with only the unreliable power of the internet to help her, she looked for others. Her mother had once told her what had happened when she'd bought a yellow dress. Only after she'd worn it for the first time had she realised how many other women also had yellow dresses. Beth found it was the same with miracles. Once she'd started to search for them, they were everywhere. Well, not everywhere, but there were far more than she'd expected. You just had to be on the lookout for them. They weren't in the dark corners of the web where those suffering from conspiracy paranoia took four dots and joined them up to make the shape of an elephant. There was evidence in more obvious places YouTube had loads of dash cam, CCTV and phone footage of unexplained things where people, and sometimes animals, seemed to benefit from an unseen hand. The next night she came across a Facebook miracle page. It told stories of people waking up with their circumstances changed for the better when they'd gone to sleep prepared for the worst. Of people whose inoperable cancer had suddenly disappeared. Others who'd been mesmerised by their phones stepping into the street and somehow been jerked out of the way of oncoming vehicles. There were stories of other envelopes arriving in front of houses where people needed money. Then she was contacted by Dora. She was the administrator of the Facebook page. Have you seen a miracle? Dora asked. When I was a kid, I saw something beyond logic. I'm trying to understand it, Beth said. You think it was a miracle? Dora asked. I don't have any other way to describe it. Beth told her what had happened. Sounds like one to me, Dora said. You must have a lot of people visiting the page, Beth said. No, actually, Dora said. I don't think people really believe in miracles anymore. There are things they don't understand, but they call them unexplained phenomena, or coincidence, or just luck. I think they are miracles, though, Dora said. I really want to find one. Beth didn't reply until the next night. If there are miracles, does that mean you believe in God? Beth asked. Dora said, If it's God, I don't understand the intention. God could save everything in the world in one go. Why a seemingly random distribution of relatively small-scale events? Why even make them visible? Dora sent a photo of a man. He looked somehow both regal and humble, knowledgeable and carefree, like a priest who was a stand-up comedian and very, very old. Who is it? asked Beth. I don't know. I came across him because he was at the site of a couple of miracles. Could be just a coincidence, of course, but I did a facial recognition search on Google. Look at these, Dora said. A whole batch of other photos arrived then. Dora had circled his face in countless images, some of which seemed to be from the 1800s. It's got to be fake, Beth said. I thought so too, Dora told her, but then this one turned up. It was a wanted poster with a picture of a bushranger. It looked undeniably like the man in the photos. Do you know who it is? Beth asked. I only have the name on the poster to go on. Beth looked at the poster again and reread the name. The Night Raider. Never heard of him, she said. <music> An immortal bushranger. It wasn't the sort of miracle they had started to look for, but if it was true, then surely it was still a miracle. If they found him, he might be able to explain what was going on. But how do you find a single old man without even knowing his real name in a country as large as Australia? Is there anything else in the photos that'll help us? Beth asked. They're from all over the place, Dora said. Some in Sydney, in Brisbane, the outback somewhere what could be the Snowy Mountains. He doesn't appear in one place twice, though. They made a wanted poster of their own and put it on social media. A couple of days later they were contacted by Gavin. A few years ago I had a win on a horse race, did quite nicely out of it actually, he told them. I'm not a big gambler but I had a hunch. I put on a hundred bucks and it came in at fifty to one, won five grand. The man? Beth asked. Held me up on my way home from the track. I think he must have followed me. Cheery kind of bloke, to be honest, for a mugger. Almost apologetic. But he took my cash just the same. I'm sure it's the same guy. I've been on his trail ever since. But he's always one jump ahead of me. I think he's in Wollongong. What? I think he's in Wollongong, Gavin said. There was a guy fitting his description robbed another bloke just near Bulleye Dogs three nights ago. Beth couldn't leave Bathurst. Dora was in Melbourne, but Gavin was free to move around. He said he'd check out the track at Kembla Grange, which had a race meeting coming up. He reckoned he wouldn't find anything. The kind of person who robbed in broad daylight surely wouldn't stay in one place for long. Beth's second miracle occurred the next day. Technically, it wasn't definitively a miracle. But what else would you call it when a 200 or more years old man you don't even know the name of drives past you in a battered orange combi van right after you've started looking for him? There, coming out of the Coles car park, was a guy who was identical to the man they were looking for. Beth was turning in, and as he went out, both their windows were down and their faces were less than a metre apart. Without hesitating. She turned around and followed him. It occurred to her that now that she'd found him, what could she do? She couldn't detain him. He was possibly armed, so she didn't want to approach him. But he was potentially an actual miracle, in a world where they existed but where very few believed in them, except Dora and apparently the Prime Minister. She trailed along behind the combi, staying as far back as she dared without losing sight of it. She didn't have much time. She had to pick Laney up from Eddie in an hour. She fell further back from the combi as the traffic lessened, until it was no more than a coloured dot a long way ahead. She went around a bend and it was no longer in sight. Then she passed a lane and right at the end, something orange. She turned around and put on a blinker. Her heart was racing. She drove slowly. There was an area by a stand of gum trees where the combi had stopped. She pulled over about 50 metres behind. She didn't know what to do. She didn't want to get in a dangerous situation. Not far away, a kookaburra started laughing. The door of the combi opened. She had the car ready to go. She'd floor it and get out of there as fast as she could if she saw any sign of a gun. The old man got out of the van. He climbed down slowly. He was wearing a kaftan. That surprised her. He looked over at her. She prepared to drive off. Then he smiled. She smiled back. You've been following me since Coles, he called out. What do you want? She couldn't answer. He spoke again. Steve Farrell's the name. What's yours? His smile had kindness in it. It wasn't the evil smile of a gun-wielding bandit. My name's Beth, she shouted back. Beth knew appearances could be deceiving, so it wasn't as if she chose to trust him, but she did decide to try and find out more about him. Are you the Night Raider? It was Steve's turn to be surprised. You've heard of the Night Raider? He looked at her, then turned away. When he turned back, he wiped his eyes before he spoke. I'm going to put a billy on. Want a cuppa? Without waiting for an answer, he went back to his van, opened the side door and took out a gas ring. Within a minute, he had some water on. He dragged out a couple of enamel mugs. Lucky I've been to the shops, he said. Fresh milk. He turned his back again and put tea into the now boiling water. She walked over to him. He handed over a mug. She took a sip. This is the best tea I've ever had, she said. A skill I have, he said. I can make the perfect cup of tea for anyone I meet just by looking at them. It's amazing, she answered. She drank some more, then looked across at the countryside. They'd had rain recently. The grass was green and long. It was pretty. Why do you rob people? Beth asked. Steve smiled his kind smile again. I only rob people who don't need money. I never hurt them. Just a habit from my old bush-ranging days. I give it to a society who takes care of people. How old are you? Beth asked. Steve shrugged. I don't know the honest answer, Steve said. I can't remember where I came from. I grew up on a farm, but I'm not sure where it was. Maybe England? Then there was a long sea voyage. I arrived in Australia in 1790. How can that be? It's got me flummoxed, he said. But I'm too old now. Even a hundred years ago it was a surprise for people, but they accepted it. If I told anyone today they'd send me for experiments. I'd be on the flaming internet. I don't want that. A light breeze now invited the long grass to dance. I've been looking for miracles, Beth said. I guess I've found one. Steve shook his head. Sorry, he said. Once met a horse that could talk. That was strange, but I don't know if even that was a miracle. I think he'd just learned how to speak English. I don't think I'm a miracle. I think I'm just an accident too. Like the horse. An outlier. In the horse's case, I reckon he just had smart genes. In mine, I got the ones for long life. There's science there, trust me. Beth thought for a while. Why aren't there more talking animals? Or immortal humans? Who says there isn't? Steve told her. Like me, though, I'd say they just prefer to lay low and keep out of the spotlight. So no miracles in all your long life? Beth asked. Now you mention it, there is one thing. Never really thought of it as a miracle, though. Just more unusual physics. Although I guess it is actually kind of miraculous, when I think about it. Come and look at this. He walked over to the combi and opened the petrol cap. She looked down the tube where the petrol went. There was an unmistakable glow at the bottom, only gentle, like a barbecue after the sausages were gone. What is it? she asked. Not sure, Steve said, but it's great for my fuel economy. What sort of mileage do you get? Can't tell you that either. I've never had to put petrol in. The gauge sits on full and, geez, when I need to, this thing flies along, let me tell you. How fast? Beth asked. Don't know that either, sorry. Once I get off the ground, the speedo just sits on maximum. Er, off the ground? Yeah, I just said that. An immortal bushranger in a flying combi. Strange science or a miracle. Was there even a difference? (music) Steve promised he'd camp in the same spot for a few more nights. Beth drove home, her head spinning and was five minutes late to pick up Lainey. Eddie had his predictable tantrum. She was used to them, and it wasn't his worst, and even Lainey rolled her eyes when he kicked off because he had a Christmas party to go to. It wasn't as if he was always on time. She waited for him to get over it, then she and Lainey drove off. Can we go Christmas light driving? she asked. It's too early, baby, Beth said. It's not even dark yet. Laney was quiet. Beth knew she was sulking and that if she turned around, she'd face a death stare. She was a father's daughter in that regard. Can I go on your phone? Laney asked when they got home. Beth handed it over with a sigh. Thirty minutes, then it'll be dinner, okay? And Christmas lights? It must be so much easier in Europe, Beth thought. It was dark so early there. Here it was nearly eight o'clock before the lights were even worth looking at but they were pretty, and they both loved them. She didn't have a computer, so she had to wait until Lady's half-hour was up before she could contact Dora and Gavin. Dora said, Wow! Gavin said, I'm coming up there. The next afternoon, Beth went back to the campsite. The combi was still there. The gums hung over the scene like giant Christmas trees, leaves sparkling like tinsel with the dampness of the unexpected rain. But there was no sign of Steve. Beth was worried. She could understand if he'd fled, a thief in the night, taken off to wherever the scene of his next crime was. That would have made sense. She would have been disappointed, sure, but a wrongdoer remains a wrongdoer. He'd lied to her and betrayed her. She'd been lied to and betrayed by worse. In the end, their search for miracles would continue. But who leaves behind a flying combi? On inspection, her curiosity grew. Who leaves behind a flying combi with the keys still in it? Her old barina was parked up behind it. His gas ring, with the billy still on it, was next to the van. She packed his things up, locked his car, took his keys and drove slowly back home. Not for the first time, she thought of how strange it was she'd seen him so soon after starting to look for him. Surely that was a miracle of sorts. Or was it just a coincidence? The TV was on in the background, some documentary on Albert Einstein. Then the narrator quoted him. Coincidence is God's way of remaining anonymous. What was going on? Was that a miracle as well? Or was hearing the quote itself just a coincidence? The next morning, which was Christmas Eve, Gavin arrived. He had some kind of huge motorbike which Beth heard when it pulled into her driveway. He had a shy smile and not as many tattoos as she'd expected. Lainey was already at school and she drove Gavin out to the campsite. It was the same as she'd left it. Gavin scratched his chin under his beard. It was a warm day and they stood looking at the combi. A soft, dry breeze blew over them. You reckon this thing can fly? Gavin asked. That's what he said. Beth answered. Want to give it a crack? Beth had to admit she was curious. She climbed in behind the wheel, Gavin beside her. I haven't driven a manual for yonks, she said. She kangaroo-hopped a U-turn. As far as she could tell, there was no magic button, nothing that suggested anything other than four gears forward and one for reverse. Flat net, Gavin told her. You reckon? He nodded. So she did. If you've heard a combi engine, the dak-dak-dak they make, that's what this one sounded like. Identical. Except it kept going faster and faster. The speedo reached maximum and they were still accelerating. The T-intersection with the highway was now in sight, approaching rapidly. What do I do? Beth asked. Have faith? Gavin replied. She kept her foot flat on the accelerator. Possibly unconsciously, she pulled back on the steering wheel and sure enough, the van lifted right off the ground. They were aloft. "'Where to?' he asked. "'Dora,' she said instinctively. "'Dora will know.' Gavin was quiet for a while. They headed south, and something became apparent. "'The clock on my phone has stopped.' "'It's not your phone.' "'It's time,' Beth said, "'which answers another question I have. "'How have people never seen a flying combi before?' There was one on Mythbusters when they put it behind a jet engine, Gavin replied. But I mean, if time has somehow stopped while we're up here, it explains why no one's ever seen Steve flying around before. What do you think happened to him? I can't explain it, Beth said. Like I can't explain so much, like a fast as light combi. Beth was enjoying the sensation of flight. She could zoom and soar. Gavin wanted to try some rolls and loops, but Beth wasn't game enough. "'Give it a burl,' Gavin said. "'Sometimes you've got to live life on the edge, you know.' "'I'm happy enough,' she told him. "'Sometimes it's also good to be content with what you have.' They were following the Hume Highway south. It was a long grey ribbon dotted with cars and trucks and buses, all apparently stationary. At one point they overtook a plane. It too was static suspended in the silent sky. They went past it quickly Not before Beth saw the face of a young girl at the window. She knew somehow the girl had seen them too. Like children were exempt from observing the laws of physics. Beth could imagine her turning to her mother. I just saw a flying car. She wouldn't be believed, of course, and one day would wonder if she'd ever seen it herself. Gavin messaged Dora and got her address, then pulled out a road map from the glove box. Once he'd worked out which way was up, he guided Beth as they flew lower and slower, ever closer to Dora's house. They touched down in a quiet back street, the familiar dak dack dack resuming and joining the sound of tyres on tarmac. Eventually they pulled up outside a house, relatively indistinguishable from the others around it. Beth texted Dora and told her they were outside. The front door swung slowly open. A figure emerged from the shadows. You're in a wheelchair, Gavin said. Beth elbowed him. I'm sure she already knows that, Beth said. Dora smiled. Want to come in? she asked. They followed Dora as she wheeled down a long, dark hallway. They emerged in a kitchen that was the opposite, a bright, friendly room with overloaded shelves, many adorned with plants. There were colourful pictures on the walls. When Dora spoke, she struggled to get her words out. I live here by myself, she said. My mum, Sonia, checks on me a few times a week. Other than that, I'm here alone. I don't have many visitors. Welcome to the Palace of Palsy. Perhaps Beth and Gavin looked puzzled. Cerebral palsy, Dora slurred. Can I get you a tea? Beth could see she had a system as she filled the kettle, clumsily holding it with two hands under the tap. Water splashed on her, she ignored it. Emptying the teapot was equally laborious and tea leaves spilled as she spooned them in. She found a funnel and poured the hot water from the kettle into the pot so none spilled. Cups on the shelf, sugar on the counter, milk in the fridge. Beth and Gavin rushed to grab them, then told Dora what they'd seen. I'm coming back with you. All right, Beth said. Gavin helped get Dora and her chair into the combi. They drove slowly north until they were in a quiet street. Here? Beth asked. I guess, Gavin said. Beth floored it. Don't worry, Beth yelled over the dack-dack-dack that rose in volume and increased in speed. Yeah, it scared the crap out of us the first time too, Gavin added. Not the best reassurance she'd ever heard, Beth thought. Then once again, they were aloft and the car went quiet. What's happening? Dora asked. We're flying, Beth said. Not that, Dora said. Beth and Gavin turned to look at her. Gingerly, Dora reached out an arm, then another one. Slowly, with a sense of inevitability, she stood. Bloody hell, Gavin said. You don't have cerebral palsy anymore. And Dora's smile was as wide as you can imagine. They were back at Steve's campsite in no time at all. It didn't seem a surprise that he was waiting for them. It also wasn't a surprise that Dora's condition hadn't returned once they'd all emerged from the combi. She stood with them, sipping from an enamel mug, taking the occasional glance back to her wheelchair, like the shell of a cicada sitting inside the combi. "'Best bloody cuppa ever,' Gavin muttered. Steve smiled." Somewhere in a tree above them, a kookaburra cackled again. You wanted miracles. I hope this was good enough for you. It was the combi speaking. Somehow, on this strangest of days, they weren't surprised. I just wanted to say thank you, the combi said. You kept looking for miracles when so many have given up. You had faith in... Well, faith... "'You're God?' asked Beth. "'You can call me that, yes. "'You're a Volkswagen, a mover of people,' the combi said. "'But I mean, you're a machine,' the combi sighed. "'I'm in the machine, as it were. "'With your beard and your staff and robes?' Gavin asked. "'The combi looked kind of exasperated.' I could manifest myself like that, sometimes I do, the combi said, but that's just to make it easier for some people. I appear in different ways. I don't have an actual shape, you see. The easiest way to explain it is to think of me as love, the great cohesive force, cosmic superglue. I bring together all the things that should be close to each other. Did you make the universe? Dora asked. I am the universe, God answered, as much as you can understand it. A multitude of coexisting universes on infinite timelines. Do you need me to explain more? They didn't. Why are you showing yourself to us? The combi looked at them. I show myself to everyone at least once in their lifetime. I don't necessarily come as the answer to a prayer. I don't solve problems so much as help you deal with them. I help people find the similarities in their beliefs and try and steer them away from the differences. Why can't you just, you know, solve everything? Dora asked. The combi shrugged. You think rising over struggle isn't important? You think finding love when you believe it's impossible doesn't bring great joy? Sometimes sorrow reminds us of the care we have. It's, look, life on Earth is a blink anyway. It's important and you may as well learn what you need to learn now. But it's not all there is. How unfair would that be? In my house there are many rooms. One of the bits the Bible authors got right. And a great way to explain the multiverse, isn't it? Beth thought the combi was looking quite smug. The kookaburra laughed again as if on cue. They all looked up. In the tree not so far above their heads was an old termite's nest. They could tell it was old because there was a hole in the middle of it. Perched on the edge was the kookaburra. It looked down at them and became abruptly silent. It disappeared inside its nest. Today is the day the young birds learn to fly, the combi told them. Will you remind people of the importance of love? What happens if we don't? Gavin asked. The combi laughed. Well, nothing except life here might be a bit harder for some people for a while. Do you want that? None of them did. Christmas? Beth asked. The combi chuckled again. Christmas is a celebration of those we love with those we love. Some people call it by other names and have other dates for it, but it still involves families and an honouring of life, of each other, of children. Beth thought of Laney then. Wanting Christmas, of how they'd told her they wouldn't have one this year. But sometimes it's hard, she said. Sometimes making Christmas happen is a lot of effort and money. Christmas is what you make it, the combi said. The essence of Christmas isn't how much you spend. The thing about Christmas, the combi continued, is that it's a continual balance. There's the spirit of Christmas, and there's the zeitgeist. The spirit of the age. They're in a constant flux, a continual evolution. It's not that they're against each other. Just sometimes one is more dominant. Can you have too much, Christmas? Beth asked. I can't answer that, the Combi said. I can't answer because I've never seen it. I think it would be fun to find out, though. But I've probably said too much anyway, the Combi said. I should go. Wait. Said Steve. What about me? Can you explain me? Oops, I meant to get to you. Yeah, you slip through a cosmic crack. Happens sometimes. Jump in, I'll take you home. Steve climbed into the combi and they said their goodbyes. Just follow your hearts. Try and do good. Peek inside a snow globe every now and again. Above all, look after each other the combi said. Steve started the engine and the van rolled away down the road. Dora was stretching, exploring her new body. Gavin was staring after the van. Beth looked up. The others followed her gaze. At the brink of the kookaburra's nest stood a young fledgling. After that conversation, I think I know how it feels, Beth said. The chick, which looked newly feathered, took a step forward. They watched, intrigued. It stretched its wings, but was clearly not yet fully capable of flight. It was falling. Beth and Dora were motionless, but Gavin, his eyes firmly on the bird, started sprinting as fast as he could towards the tree. At the last second, he made a huge, desperate, arms-extended dive. He slid on the gravel and caught the bird, which fluttered almost happily. His head hit the tree. Beth laughed. It looked so comical. The bird hopped out of his hands, clearly unharmed. Gavin lay still. Gavin? asked Dora. They ran over to him. Gavin? asked Beth. They rolled him over. Blood was seeping from his ear. Gavin! Beth felt for his pulse. There wasn't one. Dora started crying. This wasn't what they'd expected. Beth reached up and slowly felt over Gavin's head. There was a clear depression on the top of his skull. Dora kept crying. Beth ran to the side of the road. She could just see the combi. She knew it was at the point where it was about to take off and be gone forever. Wait! She screamed. Come back! She thought it hadn't heard her. It kept moving. Then it slowed and did a U-turn and started trundling towards them. Beth returned to the still-sobbing Dora and the inert body of Gavin. The Kookaburra chick was hopping around not far away from them as the combi pulled back onto the gravel. It came up close to them. Can you help him? Beth asked. Please? Steve had gotten out of the combi and was kneeling down next to Gavin. Come on, he said to the combi. It's not this bloke's fault this happened. He was trying to help. If I hadn't have robbed him, he wouldn't have even been caught up in this. He wouldn't have even been here. The combi shrugged. Life is an interlocked mesh of cause and effect from the beginning of the universe, one event leading to a multiplicity of others, it said. They were all staring at it. You did it for me, said Dora. I didn't ask and you changed me. They were all quiet again. Oh, sure, all right then, the combi said after a minute. And Gavin stirred, like he'd been asleep. The blood was gone from his face and his eyes opened. Wow, I think I knocked myself out. Yeah, you sure did, Beth answered. Had us quite worried for a minute. They said their goodbyes again, and then Dora surprised them. I've been hoping for a miracle my whole life, she said. It's great having freedom of movement and all, but I liked who I was. You want to change back, asked the combi, sounding surprised. I think I do, Dora said. Maybe not forever. Can I rain check my miracle and let you know? Sure, said the combi. How can I tell you when I decide, Dora asked. ''Just talk to the next orange combi you see,'' the combi answered. ''Well, that won't feel weird,'' Dora said. She sat back in a chair, and it was like gravity had returned to her after a spacewalk. But she was smiling, perhaps at the joy of the memory of being outside the spaceship. ''And you?'' The combi said to Beth. ''Dora's had one. Gavin's had one. I suppose you want one too?'' ''Sure.'' said Beth. What do you want? Beth thought. I want to know when I meet a guy if there's a red flag there. Okay, done. Can we go? asked the combi. Beth thought she might have felt insight or wisdom or understanding, but she didn't feel any different. One more thing, said Steve. I know the combi said earlier that money isn't important, but this is going to be wasted if I just leave it. Steve rummaged around in his old suitcase and pulled out a worn, tattered bank book. I'd forgotten I even had it, he said. I only used it the once when I put in ten pounds. In 1896, the combi said. Gavin whistled. With compound interest, I think you'll all be looked after. How will we get it out? Beth asked. Steve passed her an old fountain pen. Universal signature, the combi explained. One-time use. Although you've missed the banks today, though. And now we really must be going. They said their goodbyes, and they watched as the combi disappeared a second time. Then, amazingly, after a few skips, the young kookaburra stretched its wings and started to fly clumsily at first, but then more confidently, and went back up to its nest. Another miracle, Beth whispered. And then Beth realised they were actually surrounded by miracles. They happened everywhere, every day. They drove slowly and silently back into town. Beth thought about asking Gavin to stay. Perhaps it'd be fun to hang out for a while. Then as he stood in a lounge room with the TV on in the background, There was a news story on China. She saw red flags everywhere and she understood how her miracle was going to work. They said goodbye. What'll you do now? Beth asked. Same as always, Gavin said. Just have fun. A few beers, my mates, riding my bike. There's a corner I'm perfecting. Reckon I can get another 10 k's an hour through it if I set it up right. On Blue Gum Way. Might even try it on the way home. I'm feeling that good. They hugged, and Beth understood that despite his resurrection, she would never see him again. She knew it was his time. The tiny amount Steve had invested had grown into hundreds of thousands. She split it evenly with Dora after the new year. It helped for all the years to come. And that Christmas day, despite the difficulties, was the best one yet. Beth went to sleep that night, not with thoughts of holy combi vans or the miracles she'd seen or even the memory of a little bird taking its first flight. She thought instead of the smile on Laney's face as they'd put up a tree which was a fallen branch of a gum in the garden, adorned with homemade decorations. She'd kept smiling when they'd lit candles on the table, when her mother had scraped up enough for a chook from Woolies, when she'd opened the small presents Beth and her mother had made her. That was another miracle, Beth realised, the smile of a child at Christmas. A reminder of the love that surrounds us, of the joy we can find, of just how many miracles there are, if only we look.
0: That was Elizabeth Serby reading The Night Raider Before Christmas. Please like Ear Movies or rate it or whatever your podcast platform has set up to say you enjoyed it, or even just tell your friends. This is Biological Poker, season one of Ear Movies. Keep an ear out for season two, Conversations with Buckthumper. I'm Simon Lockhurst. Thanks for listening.